bit louder. Maybe the problem was that you guys were making too much sound. That might have been what the real issue was. Hey, so welcome to class. If you haven't been here, we've been studying through the life of David. I think it's great. Thank you, Susan. We're studying the life of David. We've been walking through 1 Samuel for a few months, a couple months at least. Um, and we are in, do you know where we are? Chapter 24. Well done. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So now quick, quick reminder, what we're trying to do here, several different things. One, we just want to understand what happened. What was David's life like? He is the most significant character in the Bible, second only to Jesus. There's way more content about David than anybody else besides Jesus. Not just what he said and what he did, the songs that he wrote, half of the Psalms are his. But we just get an enormous amount of information about his, the narrative of his life. And so we figure if God's going to spend so much time on this one guy, we want to understand what it is, what's about him. And one of the things, not the only thing, but I think the most significant thing about David is what? Why, why do we get so much content about him? And we, I don't know if I've phrased it quite like this in the past. You're going to have to chew, this one, chew on this a little bit. But why is David such a big deal? Why so much content, Dan? He's the king presaging the real king. Excellent. That's an, that's an excellent way to say it. He's the king presaging the real king. He is, his, he is the archetype of Jesus. When the Messiah comes, he will be known as the son of David. Now you're going to say son of God, yes. He is the son of David. So when the blind man shows up and says, son of David, have mercy on me, right? That's, David is the, he is the pattern. He is the picture. He is the what is his role? What is his office? King. king. He is the king of Israel. When the Messiah comes, he's going to come to be king. And there are so very many ways that David anticipates, pictures, foreshadows what the Messiah is going to be. And so largely a study of the life of David is a study of what the Messiah ought to be, but also what man cannot be. Because David is this weird double vision spot. On the one hand, you see the way that he... He kind of sets the path, sets the standard, is the template for the Messiah. But he also can't live up to his own standards, right? And he's going to blow it terribly, right? We're in a portion of the story where David is still doing an incredibly good job, right? The, 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 the collapse, the disappointment, the cratering is yet to come. Here in chapter 24, David honestly is killing it. He is doing, it, doing an incredible job, okay? So we're going to take a look and we'll just start reading chapter 24, verse 1. And we'll kind of talk about it in chunks. So here's where we're at. Chapter 1 Samuel 24, 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all over Israel, from all Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, real quick, what just happened? Does anybody remember what just happened prior to this in chapter 23? What's our immediate context, Chris? Saul tried to... Killed David, and then it just happenstance did that he just got called back. Yes, yes, there was. Ah, oh, you should have been dead, David. Yes, yeah, so 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 what Chris is saying is that David had been basically being pursued by Saul, and they're basically about to meet around this mountain, and all is lost. And so Saul's about to come and capture him, and then Saul gets a message that says, "Hey, something's going down with the Philistines." And so, like right before this critical moment, Saul just abandons and leaves. Right. So Saul had been on the pursuit, he's not, and now he's done pursuing the Philistines. Pursuing the Philistines was the thing that had, that had messed him up, okay? And then in verse, th- 20, or verse 3, it says, He came to the sheep pens along the way, he is Saul, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. 
David and his men were far back in that cave, that exact cave. That's where they were hiding. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, quote, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men, did not allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave and went on his way. All right, first off, what does the word providence mean? What's providence? Is that a term? I, I feel like that's a little archaic. you have a sense of what providence is? Okay, provision. Who said that? Lily, okay, you don't sit back there. What happened? You're, you're up here. Okay, it's weird. Somebody stole Lily's seat. Um, so... Uh, the provision of God. Okay, so you're hearing what, what Lily's done in, in, immediately there. The word providence, you're hearing perhaps in it the word provide. Okay, and so then you're just kind of turning provide into provision. It is the provision of God. That's good. It's a good start. And we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of etymology work on that. So yes, the provision of God. How do we use the word providence? What does it mean? Providence. It's not merely that we get stuff. That's formulation of history. Okay, God's formulation of history. What do you mean by that? Unpack. Things place are under his control and we call it God. Okay, so the things that take, Bob's saying, the things that take place in history, it, everywhere? All things? Maybe? Are you, are you, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Yeah. God's in control. He lets things happen, but he's not. Okay, so God is in control. He lets things happen, but the movement working out of history is under his sovereign provision, right? A, a reformed framing of that would be that God hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Okay, that's that. Providence, does that have a connotation for you, Catherine? Sometimes people use it like when they just don't understand why things happen, they say, well, it's providence. Okay, good. Yeah, so sometimes, and even Chris, you use the word happenstance, right? So David's coming around the thing and Saul's coming around the things and it just so happened at that exact moment David got, or Saul got a message saying, hey, you know, we got to go fight the Philistines. And it seemed rather happenstancy, and yet it was quite convenient, right, that that happenstance occurred at that exact moment. Yes? Yes. Yes, okay. So God's plan is working out. But do you guys, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we watched these Alpha videos. Do you remember, uh, I think his name, is it Nikki? Is that the name of the guy that runs the thing? Nikki something, Gumble, maybe? What is it? Gumbel. It is Gumble. Nikki Gumble. He, uh, he was talking about praying for something. He was on a boat, he was on a bus, and then he prayed that he, he was alone, and then God brought on like some old friend onto the bus, and, and it was just a really extraordinary coincidence. Do you remember that? And, so, and he, you know, he began to think, it seems like God was answering my prayer, and somebody said, well, yeah, I think it was just a coincidence. And he says, well, it's funny, because I've noticed that when I pray, coincidences happen, right? That's providence. It's providence. It seems coincidental, and yet somebody's running the show here, okay? Now, let's do a little bit of word study. Providence, you took us, Lily, already from providence to provide. Break down provide. What does, it just kind of go to your Latin roots, Okay. What is pro, what is vide? What is vi, vide? To see, okay? So vide, like vini, vidi, vici, or video. To, V-I-D-E is Latin for see. 
pro, what is that? Forward. Forward, right? So pro vide, right, to provide, providence, is all about God's ability to foresee everything. He sees forward, and in his forward-lookingness, his ability to see all things, he can make it so that just as you're coming around the mountain, and David is about to meet you, the Philistine message shows up. Right? Because he sees all things. It's to, we see it and it seems rather marvelous when it occurs, but it's the normal thing. He can see exactly which cave Saul is going to go into when he needs to relieve himself. And prior to that, bring David and his men into that exact same cave. It seems like happenstance. It's quite a coincidence. But in fact, the God who sees all things brings it all to pass. Such that David is in there and it's so easy to kill him. Now, how did David's men interpret the event? They're in the cave. Saul comes in. And what do they, what do they, what, how do they literally describe it? This is the moment. It's an opportunity. This is a, this is a no-brainer. This is an absolute opportunity to kill uh, Saul, right? And in fact, yeah, Eric? It's not just that it's an opportunity. The men felt that it was God's will that David yeah. killed It was. This is, this is it. This is what, they, this is what he said. Yes. Okay. Now, when you say, look, look at Eric's pointed to verse 4, I think, probably. Think, think, look at verse 4 here. Here's, here's the men's response. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, quote, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Okay. Now, does anybody know what they're quoting? What is that coming from? Where, where did God say, I will deliver your enemy into your hands so that you can deal with them as you wish? Joshua? It's actually nowhere. It doesn't exist. There's nothing. Okay? Now, if somebody ever said that to him, they didn't say it in Scripture. Okay? It was never recorded. It's not, it shows up nowhere in this thing. And so they, they, are, they, they see it. It makes sense to them. And have you ever noticed this? It makes sense to them, and so they ascribe to the Lord. Yeah, it makes sense to God. Because it makes sense to me, clearly this would make sense to God. This is what he's telling you to do, right? Be really careful about that, right? It's pretty easy to write a letter and then sign, God, sign God's name on the bottom of it, but I don't recommend that as a course of action, okay? Suzanne? Um, just in the previous chapter, when David was conferring with God about uh, going down to Kyla. Uh, the Lord says, I'm going to give the Philistines in here. That's right. Like, they've taken it a step further. That's right. That's right. So, God, there are, there's certainly, there are times where God will deliver into David's hands other enemies. But this is, this message, this prophecy, this like divinely ordained message that these guys are giving, it's not true. It's not real. In fact, quite the opposite. David is abundantly clear, chapter after chapter after chapter, that he has no authority to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. But somebody shows up and says, sure you do. And he doesn't take the bait. It's really important. When somebody shows up in your life and says, hey, God is telling you you can go do this, are you going to take the bait? Okay, now remember, all this while, all this while, we are trying to understand, how does David anticipate Messiah? Does that ring a bell for you? Can you think of other times where maybe somebody shows up and tells Jesus, hey, you can go do this. And he's like, I don't buy it. I know what God has said in his word, and I'm not going to follow this. Where do you see it? Okay, where does Satan do that to him? When he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. That's what I was thinking too. Yep. Tell him that he can do anything. He can jump off this pyramid and he's going to be caught. That's right. 
Satan likes to imitate the voice of God, right? And he calls Jesus to do these things, and Jesus is like, no deal. I'm not going to do it, right? It's the same thing in the garden, right? Not with Jesus, but with Adam and Eve. Of Satan is like going to give this, he's going to countermand what God has said. And there's a wisdom in saying, you know what? I'm not, I don't buy it. I know what he has said. I don't know if you're legit. And so I'm going to be more cautious here and just, instead of just taking your thing. The, the Messiah, when he comes, is going to do this beautifully. David is an, anticipating that, okay? So there's this bogus message. David doesn't take the bait. But God is sovereignly, graciously doing something, right? He did put him in the cave, if not to kill him for something else. Okay, we'll come back to that. Dan? Um, just wanted to back up slightly and say that what, the, what David's guys are doing here is exactly what Saul was doing. Yes. Yes. Looking at circumstance and ascribing God's will to the circumstance. That's exactly right. You know, and it's like everybody in the story is caught up in this, oh, we see what's happening, therefore this is God's will, except for the one God. Okay, so what, what I love about you saying that, Dan, is that one of the things, when we, when we come to Scripture, there's a couple of things that we're trying to look at, right? Uh, and I, I think I've given you these two bright things. On the one hand, we're looking at the mankind. Who, what are the characters in the story doing where they display their brokenness and their badness, their sin and their suffering, their guilt and their grief? Every study, every passage of the Bible is essentially an anthropology study. And you could ask the question, what is this saying is wrong with them, and I'm part of them? What is wrong with us? Okay? That's happening story. The other thing is, like, how does God intervene? What is God's solution? So what's the badness or the brokenness that we bring to the party? That's always happening in every passage. And then what is God's solution? That's also always happening. And if you can understand these two things, that's going to drive you to see what, what God really wants you to get. And one of the things about our badness and our brokenness, right, is that we have a tendency. Have you noticed this? We're meaning makers, right? Something happens, and so we create a narrative about it. And sometimes we'll create some divine narrative about it. That might not be so. We saw it in the last chapter where Saul's like, clearly I know what the Lord is doing here. He's given David into my hands. It's amazing how often we interpret the circumstances around us to mean God is on my side and he wants me to kill somebody, right? That's what's happening here, both of these things. There's something in us that says, I am now privileged to disadvantage somebody else because it's going to serve my purposes and I think that's what God wants me to do. Just be mindful of that, Right? How is it that you're interpreting your world around you in that way? Okay, that's what's going down here. All right, so um, let's see. So David doesn't kill him, but what does he do in the cave? Do you know? What is, short of stabbing him in the neck, he does something else. Okay, he shows he could have killed him, right? How does he do it? He cuts off the corner of his robe, right? Now, this is an interesting thing. On the one hand, in the most surface level, the most obvious meaning of that is simply what? Is what? Proof of that he could have, right? So if I can get close enough to cut the corner of your robe off, then it's just a, basically a way of saying, like, I was right on you and I didn't kill you. Do you believe me now that I'm not trying to kill you? Because that would have been so easy. Your army wasn't even here. I mean, it was, he's incredibly vulnerable. He's got his pants around his ankles. And it's like, it's just easy, right? But he doesn't do it. Okay, so there's that. But there's, I think, a little bit more. A little bit more here. And I don't know that this would be super obvious here. But any idea of what meaning, other than I could have killed you and I didn't, might be ascribed to cutting the corner off his robe? Okay, there's some symbolism. Let's get into some of the symbolism here. Let's get some, get some guesses. There are a bunch of hands. Laura Beth, you want to go first? 
Okay. I like this. Okay, so he's eating into his role as king, right? There's this, the robe is a symbol of kingship, right? This is his royal robe, and he's going to take some of that. So in the way, there's, this, there's been imagery here of like, that we're going to take this garment off you and give it to David. And so it's a bit of an erosion. It's like, I'm not going to kill you, but I am going to take your kingdom. I think that's part of it. Yes. Okay, yeah, way, way back. Allie, excellent. Okay, so do you remember this scene where, where, where Saul steals somebody's robe and tears it away? Do you guys remember this story? That's excellent, Allie. And again, it's symbolic of kingship transfer. Okay, that's part of what else is going on here. And I think there's one other thing that's more obscure. Suzanne, you got something obscure you want to throw on the table? Yeah, um, in the story of Ruth, Boaz puts the corner of his robe over her as like, Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I will care for you. And so David is showing that Saul is no longer Okay, I had not thought about the Ruth thing. That that's such a strange story. There, there might be something there too, um, although the sh- casting the garment over is it's a provision. Um, that might be invoked here. I'd have to think about that one. I don't know if that is or not, but it might be. So yes. Okay, Allie, got the super obscure one yet? Hmm. I don't think so. Maybe, but that would fit under the category of obscure. So that's good. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, so that's good. All right, Judy, I get one more time, and then, I'll, and then I'm, I'm going to show you something weird. Well, I just think it would be terribly disrespectful because he's a king, he's doing his private business. You're supposed to give him honor and respect and speaking on behalf of him when he goes to his I could have killed you. I'm chipping away your royal robe. You're going to lose the kingdom. All these things. And the whole thing is profoundly disrespectful. Although it's better than stabbing him in the neck. But go to Numbers 15. And tell me if this doesn't, if you think this might be meaningful. It's not only a symbol. This part, it's not just the garment, but the part of the garment that, is, uh, that I think has meaning. In Numbers 15, look, look at verse 38 and following. It says... Speak to the Israelites. And we don't know this. We don't live in this world. Okay, this is one of those discontinuities between our world and theirs. But they would know this. Numbers fifteen thirty-eight. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your, gar- of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. The very part of the garment that he cuts off is that this is what he's cutting off. This thing that reminds you of the laws of God that you are to obey. God basically, David is essentially saying, well, you're not doing that, so I'll just get rid of it. What's the point? Right? And in that, he's not only taking away, not only suggesting he's not fit to be king, but he's not really a fit follower of Yahweh in the first place. Right? There's a, I think there's a lot going on here. And he doesn't kill him. Okay? So that's all the stuff that's, that's happening there. So it is not merely, we're going to see why it is going to, it's going to, this chapter is going to end with an exaltation of David, that he is fit to rise to the throne. But it is also a rebuke against Saul, who is not following the law, is not performing his kingly duties. Uh, and God has providentially 
brought him into this place where he would be rebuked and judged. Okay, makes sense? Marty? You think that when he cut that, that's why he was conscious stricken. Yes. Cutting away something that should have been something he shouldn't cut away because that would have reminded us all to go back to the war. Okay. So, Marty, it's such a great thing because I'm so glad you said it because what we'll get, well, we'll get, we'll get here. Um, let's see, where is it? Um, stay with me. We were going, you're going a little bit ahead, but I think you're exactly right. Where does he say, where is David conscience stricken? Where is that? Verse 5? Already? Oh, I thought I was down lower. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So you're not going ahead. I'm just out of order myself. So afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut the corner off his robe. When I read that, I'm like, David, relax. Like, why are you freaking out about that, right? It seems like he's having a pretty strong emotional reaction to cutting off the corner of his robe when he could have killed him. And why is he like, ah, maybe that was a bit too far? Because it doesn't seem like it's very far at all. But if you understand what it means, then perhaps it was a bit too far, right? And so David sees it, he takes it, and then he's like, ah, and he kind of rolls it back. Which is what, an ex- what kind of an exquisite level of sensitivity does he have that he would feel bad after that relatively benign action, right? But yes, I think that's how it all, it all comes together like that. So that's a great eye. Okay, how you doing? Keeping up? Everything's good? So he's in the cave, cuts the thing, and I think that it means, I think those things, I don't think I'm making any of that up. That's all really what, what's meant by there. Um... And he's essentially voiding Saul's claim on the kingship. It's a big deal. Okay, Bob first, and then back to Catherine. Jonathan, just a few chapters back, give him his robe too. Yes, this, several times. Whole chapter that you can see Jonathan did it, and Saul says it. Yes, and this and this this garment thing, like we don't garment schmarment, right? But. It keeps happening where the, where the, where the clothing is, is emblematic or sim, symbolic of this, this rule. Who is going to really be king? So that's, that's all what's happening here. Okay, Lily, I, I lied. So Lily, then Catherine, go. I just made me think of the symbolism of the robe, the covering of God, even as the ancestral representative of the office that he's put you in. So you've got Samuel, prophet, robe, mantle, office. Yep. King, robe. Yeah, there's, there's layers of meaning on this. And so that's, again, we're, we're trying to learn how do we read narrative. You could just blitz through this chapter, right? Just read it, blah, 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 run through it. And then miss, like, so much of the, of the substance behind the events, right? But all these layers of meaning, I think, are present. Yes, Catherine. I, I don't know if you got verse 5. Uh, yeah, go for it. It would have to be incredibly tempting if somebody's been trying. Somebody's been trying to kill you for I don't. I don't even know. I haven't. I haven't done a map of the timeline here. But how? Is at least a year, a couple of years, right? I mean, it's been going on for a while. And to have him right there, you understand why the men are like, "Boom! The Lord has delivered him into your hands." And he does have a knife in his hand. I mean, he's not. Cu- he's cutting this thing off, you know, with a knife. And then he's, uh, you know, yeah. 
So it's, it's, he's in there. And yet David is steadfast and will remain so throughout. All right, let's keep going. Verse 8. How we got? How we got time? So here we go. Pick it up. Then David went out of the cave and he called to Saul. By the way, there's a gap here. Saul's like a distance away. Saul went out of the cave and called to Saul, my lord, the king. Look at that. It's a very gracious label. My lord, the king. He just cut his king off. Okay. My lord, the king. And then Saul looked behind him and David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. What does that posture denote? Service, respect, humility, right? He's not taunting. He's not mocking. He's, not, he's unbelievably tactful here, ridiculously so. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Notice the why, right? You hear people talk about respect the office, not the man. That, that's what David is doing. He is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe, of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. That thing that I just read, you know what that passage's claim to fame is right there? the longest continuous quote of David in, the, in, the, in his entire narrative. This is his longest speech, okay? That's meaningful. One of the ways that we judge the importance of something in narrative is simply by how much size is given to it. The author of this could have just abbreviated, but he's like, he gives us this whole big long thing. And so that just tells us, slow down, what's going down there? What's the message? Dunlap? So I'm confused. David comes out of the cave. He is close enough to Saul that he can, Saul can see him, hear him. He's bowing down. See that the robe is not just a piece of cloth. It's actually his. So David's literally pushed, positioned himself. And if this doesn't work, Saul's walking back to the hill with his whole army, and it's over. So David knows this is going to work, or he believes it's going to. But he still feels bad about the strategy he took to get there. Okay. Yeah, okay, so this is good. So it's a little bit weird because Saul is about to say, uh, David is, you know, is that you, David? Okay, so the distance is tough. Like he's, he can hear him, he can see, he can see him, he can hear him, but he may not be able to physically recognize him with his eyes. So I don't know what that distance is. Is he, I don't even know, is he a hundred yards off? I, I don't know. And how close is Saul's army? So Saul, however close Saul is, he's, he's, he hasn't seemingly brought his bodyguards with him and certainly hasn't brought his entire army with him. So maybe the army's down there and he went on a walk to find a cave. You know, I don't exactly know what the distances are. But there's some weird gap that he's yelling across the thing and, and Saul has it's at least enough re- kind of ridiculous uncertainty that he's like, David, is that you? That we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, so that's the distance thing. But then your question is, in, in, the, in that context, why does David feel bad if he's... Still, tell me, tell me the tension for you. Yeah, 
I mean, Saul's about to basically let him off the hook from what he feels he's been wrong and say, okay, and he leaves, right? Like, that's kind of the end. Yep. David, I mean, sure, the army could have been a mile away, but they know exactly where they are now. They're literally within sight of them. Like, it could be over right then. For Saul, he could kill the white team out completely. And yet, God says, no, this is the moment. But David feels bad about it. Right. I did something wrong, even though God providentially is literally using it to end this conflict. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, yes. So David is going to perennially feel that he has absolutely no right or authority to lay a hand on Saul. It's going to come up over and over again. Even though, and, and this story is going to end with Saul saying, you're right, I'm wrong, you're going to be king. And then you turn the page and the, Saul's right back at it again. Right? It's going to keep happening. So I think you're going to find David is not going to trust a word that Saul says. And yet, he will never, ever defend himself. And this, again, as we're looking, how does this picture anticipate what the Messiah is going to be? That's, that's very, very significant, right? That he could kill him. He could end it. But he, David will believe that Saul will be a threat until Saul is dead. And, so, and David will never move to neutralize the threat. Both of those things are going to define David's time prior to becoming king, for sure. Ellen? It's, it strikes me like David's imprecatory psalms. He is going to leave God's hand. That's right. Raising it off in God's hand. 100%. This is the entire thing. And the nature of the imprecatory Psalms, we look at them and they, they seem bloodthirsty. But the Psalms are never like, I'm going to kill him. It's always, God, you kill him. Because I'm not, I'm not going to touch him, but you can, right? That's, and that's how these things work. Like, David will not be the agent of Saul's destruction. But he does trust and hope. And I think we could say desires that the Lord will bring that about. And that is, that, that is, the, that is the only thing that can make you help you be a Christian pacifist is if you believe that God will be just and therefore you do not need to be the executor of that justice. That is how that whole thing works. Suzanne? Uh, it's not even saying, is that you, is that your voice? Like David's been living out in caves for a couple of years. He probably looks pretty rough. Yeah. Um, he might not recognize him. Yes. He remembers hearing his voice because David Right, and he's all, and, and of course the language that David is using is like, hey, you're trying to kill me. So I was like, who am I trying to kill again, you know, right? And so, I mean, he should recognize him from the, from the context if, if nothing else, you know. All right, we ready to keep going? All right, so, so, oh yeah, so it's the longest speech that David gives. What's the essence of the speech? What is, what is David's primary theme here in this long thing? And by the way, I'll just tell you this, give you a heads up. Saul's going to respond with Saul's longest speech. Okay, So you have David's longest speech and Saul's longest speech juxtaposed. The author of the, of the narrative here is trying to tell you something with that. This is the core message. This is the meaning. What are we to get? We, we're going to get in these speeches. So David's message is what? what would you, in fact, do it at your table. Just going to kind of go into your, little, your defined groups here and just take a minute. What is the essence of David's message here? In his speech, just kind of skim back through it, and then we'll talk in just 60 seconds. So much that 
What's the message? What's distill it down? What is David's core speech? You guys got an answer here? You got one? Yeah, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. If you don't want to, I don't care who. Uh, I think I think he's basically saying I'm good, you're bad, but I'm not. <laughs> that's good. That's not that's not bad. I'm good, you're bad, but I'm not going to do anything about it. That's. <laughs> is that just how we should just live our lives? Just walk around and listen. If you hear nothing else, I'm good, you're bad, but whatever, right? Okay, good. What did you guys get? Core message. What did you think? Uh, I was just going to say that uh, if, we, if we put it in the picture of the coming Messiah, um, David knows how this is going to end. Um, the, the long behind the longing is that I've got this, and so uh, I'm just putting you aside, Saul. So. Okay. That, that David knows that what the Lord is going to ultimately do. This is true. It's good. Cure message? What's David's message? What did you guys come up with? It, I, I mentioned that in the ESV, there was no pronunciation. The ESV says, when David says, I'm a dead dog, I'm a flea, exclamation, exclamation. The uh, NIV says, question mark, question mark. Huh. Change the whole perspective. Hmm. David's saying, am I a, a dead dog? Am I a flea? Why are you coming after me? Why do I matter? That's all because God's going to judge between you. And it's almost a warning. Whereas the other way of reading it is saying, like, hey, I'm just a... I'm just a flea, you know. Yeah. Wasting your time. Why are you doing this? I mean, I'm not doing anything to Yes. It's, it's one of those times where you, you read two different translations, you get kind of two different perspectives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a helpful thing. Okay, excellent. These are great. I love when you guys interact. One more. David's core message. Your brilliant table here. Suzanne? Uh, the, the Lord has already chosen between us. The Lord has chosen between us, and may he continue to do so. Okay, great. All right. All the, things, the way I would boil all this down, there's so many different things that he's saying. It's a long speech. you got a lot of threads. I think his primary thing here is his pro- protestation of his loyalty to the king, his innocence. He's like, I'm not, David, I mean, Saul, look at it. I'm loyal. I am, everybody is telling you that I am bent on your destruction, but I'm not. What more evidence do you need? It's a protestation of his innocence of the primary charge that hangs over his head. He's not going, he's not doing anything bad. I'm loyal, I'm innocent, I'm not guilty, right? That's what he's saying. And Saul is going, well, we'll see what Saul does, right? Well, in fact, we'll see it in a second. How does he make his case? He's innocent, he's loyal, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not. I am good, and you are bad, but I'm not going to do anything about it, right? How does he make his case? Just look at some of the language that he uses. How would you characterize him? He has, you could divide his message, I think, into two different, there's two different modes to it. On the one hand, he's unbelievably tactful. He honors Saul. 
He says, my Lord, the king, right? And even when Saul is completely responsible for this fantasy of David's treachery, he says, why do you believe men when they tell you that I'm trying to kill you, right? Do you see how he's very, he's not saying you're making this up in your head and you're lying about it. He says, why do you believe your false advisors? Do you see how there's this graciousness to his tone? He could be far more accusatory. Why do you keep chucking spears at me? Instead he says, why do you believe those that say to you? His whole mode, he, I mean, and what's his physical posture as he's giving this speech? He's on the ground, okay? He could not be any more humble, lowly, gracious, tactful, non-accusatory toward the man who is repeatedly trying to kill him. Okay, you, you should see there's this odd differential there. John? The biggest thing was that he held us back to our quarter of Saul's robes in your sea. I couldn't dodge. That's right. And so not only are his words humble, but his behavior is like, I will not, right? He's, there's a humility that transcends the whole thing. So half the message, half the message is his gentleness, his lowliness, his humility in all things, okay? What's the other half? Because it's the exact opposite of that. Yeah. He calls for God to judge. He does. I mean, there's a boldness. Now, now, so he's humble, he's lowly, he's gracious, he's tactful, and he says, and this is going to end really badly for you. Right? Look at He kind of gives this little five-point thing at the end. Look at his five points. He says, may the, Lord, may the Lord be judge. May he decide between us. May he consider my cause, uphold my cause. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. He is... He is this weird mix. And this, again, we're looking at how does this whole thing anticipate Messiah? When Jesus comes, he is going to be the both and. He is going to be lowly and gentle and humble like a sheep before his shears is silent. He's not going to open his mouth. And he's going to jump in the Pharisee's face and say, woe to you. How will you ever escape being condemned to hell? Right? He will not falter until he establishes justice on the earth. And we've, seen, we've talked about this in other contexts, but great leaders mirror, they, or they, they match these two seemingly opposite things of great personal humility along with an indomitable will. And David is going to be like as kind as he can be, but he's not going to pull his punches, right? That spread to be able to be forceful and direct and clear without being insulting and unkind and harsh, like that weirdness. When Jesus comes, he's going to be the, the ultimate both and, right? He is the lion and he is the lamb, right? You know, we've talked about this. This is one of my favorite sermons of all times is Jonathan Edwards, the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, right? Have we talked about, do you remember this? We've talked about this in this room, that Jesus is, he's super, super hot and he's super, super cold, but he's never lukewarm, right? He is infinitely worthy to receive all good, and infinitely patient in suffering evil. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father and communes with the lowly. This, this mirroring of opposites, this lamb-like lion and this lion-like lamb is the hallmark of Messiah. And David is manifesting that, that reality here. Okay? Make sense? Man, to be like that. Do you need to be more gentle and more humble and more tactful? Or... Do you need to be more bold and courageous 
and forceful and honest? Or do you need to be both, right? Right, it's both. Catherine? Just to make David's character stand out even more, I I see what he could have done. And one of the things he could have done was he could have said, Saul, face it, I can't help it that people love me more. Yeah. Right. Yes. But he's not in it for himself. He's not. Just lowering himself and and denying all that, that speaks really loud. Absolutely, right? He could say, hey, so remember that song about me killing tens of thousands? How many, I forget, what was your number? But, but, but he doesn't. All right, let's look at Saul's response, okay? So verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? David, my son, that's new, that's new, okay? Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way that you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants like you cut off my robe. Or wipe out my name from my father's family. Okay? What is the essence, first of all, of Saul's message? What's the bottom line for this longest narrative of Saul? There's no repentance. Okay. We're, we're going to get to the, the pseudo-repentance in a second. But what is, what is the message? David, you're right. David, you're right. But so what? So what? What's the punchline of the whole thing? Mm, that's what he wants. So there's, there's another core thing. What is his, maybe his prediction? What's this? Eric? Part of me that has been wrestling with this, when David calls him father, he calls him son. This, you know, I don't know what Charles' family dynamic has been, but that's kind of an odd behavior for father and son. It is. It is very odd. Um, I think in, in, in that sense, David sees Saul and took him into his, his household, treated him like the father, and they, they loved each other once. And there was that. But he's also his father king. Now, now Saul sees David as his son who he loved and he brought him to his house. But he sees him and knows he's going to be the king. And he's going to be Saul's legacy. That's it. That's the thing, right? He wants to make sure that that legacy that is air language. That's Psalm 2. Today I have become, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That's Psalm 2. That is when the kingship is transferred. He's using inheritance language, and he says, you, it is surely the case that you will be king. Okay? Now this is weird because Saul is such a mess, but the central message of David is, I'm loyal, I'm innocent, I've done nothing wrong. And the central message of Saul is, you will be king. And once again, we are looking, how do we see this in, terms of me- in messianic terms? Like, the, when the Messiah comes, he will be the innocent one who is accused, who suffers, who is maligned, but does not defend himself, and who most surely will be made king. And that's, that's what's going down here. Now, the fact that it's coming out of Saul's mouth is so strange, because Saul is about to take it all back in like three verses, okay? He's just completely worthless. But... The language, this prophetic speech is, is spot on. Dan? This, this section has been confusing to me, but here's how I've, I've rationalized it. I'm just throwing this out as a possible reading. Yeah. That Saul really is alone here. 
that he doesn't have his men surrounding him, that he really did go off by himself, and he knows David has his guys with him, and Saul is scared. He is at David's mercy, if that is true, and he's sly, and he's kind of just repeating back what David said, you know, and he goes into the David, my son, I'm going to use this warm language because maybe it'll get you not to kill me right now. Yes. Um, repeats back what they both know to be true to get out of there with his life. Okay. This, I don't know either, but you could be exactly right. So what we, what we know that's about to happen, if you've read, if you read the next chapter, you're going to see instantly all of Saul's apparent repentance just dissolves like cotton candy in water. It's just gone. It's just, it's just gone, baby, gone, right? So either he was lying and it was all, you know, a pretense, just maybe for his own safety, or he really meant it, but he just couldn't retain it, right? And I don't honestly know which one it is. I think your theory that like right now he's in a vulnerable state, then he's, he's repentant. And, or maybe the nature of humanity is that it's both at the same time, right? Is that... Sometimes I feel genuinely repentant until I get past the cop, right? Like, do you know this phenomena? You know, you're like, man, I was really driving too fast. I should have, actually, never mind, and we're, and we're, and we're gone, right? That could be the phenomena that's going on, right? Elijah? Uh, Yeah, and so it's, it's, a good, it's a good question. So certainly Saul has his own internal pressures that are going to drive him. But there are his advisors. His advisors want him to maintain the kingship because they get to keep their jobs if they do, right? So there, I'm sure there's a lot of different pressures. And maybe others are like, man, we can go, ki we can go kill him. We, we don't need to do it. And so he's kind of back and forth and in and out on this. Okay, and I'm so sorry. I'm losing track of the timing of hands. So Chris, you can go. And then is that, is that Becky? I can't even see you. I don't have my glasses on. Okay, Chris, then Becky. Uh, not that you weren't going to bring this up again, but I, I just don't want to lose uh, the focus of how those are the longest um, speeches. Yeah. Parties. Um, when I think of longest speeches, I think of uh, me being definitely a culprit of one of these, of either a long doctoral paper that you want to make sure all the sources are cited and all the facts put forward, or just blabbing so that you can just talk your way out. Mm which is typically what I'll do. But um, that first David definitely feels more, this is the point A and B and C points. To oh, David's very well organized. Let's make it a case, yeah. Saul, starting with, is that your voice, my son, David? And then ending with just, oh, also, regardless of what I said before, since you're gonna be king, don't kill my kids. It just feels so potentially tied into his bipolarness. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you're right. So David, we, if you go through David, we, didn't, we don't have the time to fully unpack it, but you could just like outline David's case. He is like a lawyer making his closing case to the jury, right? He's really very well, very tidy. Whereas Saul is emotionally, I mean, he's cry, literally crying, which suggests that he might be sincere or at least sincerely scared, right? Which would serve your, your, your point earlier. So he's kind of coming at it from a little bit different. Okay, and we're almost out of time, so Becky? No, 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 let's hear it. I want to hear it. Don't ask me to elaborate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all this throwing around of the king makes, and the, the messianic piece of it makes me think of the trials of Jesus and how Pilate's like, if he's your king, the Pharisees said, we didn't say it was our king, but you need to. He said he was king, but you need to put him to death. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Throwing the, the king back and forth, what you're 
Yeah. So, yeah, so I think if I, if I caught what you're saying, so Becky is observing, there's, there's another similarity here. You're seeing David is like accused, and then no, he's fine. He's accused, and no, no, everything's great. He's under attack. And no, no, we're not, never going to hurt you. And that has similarities in when Jesus is going to be accused and attacked, and they drag him before this trial and this trial and this trial. And that pattern, that there's this picture uh, that his, his tribulations will be many from multiple sources. This is kind of confusing and a mess. And yet, through all the crazy, he will prevail, right? By the way, there's one other guy, one other character in the Bible that has that same paradigm, and it's Paul. Everything that happens in Acts, watch this, everything that happens in Acts already happened in the Gospels. When Paul shows up, he's on this march to Jerusalem, and I don't think we're going to get there, bro, so you might wonder. So everything that happens, right, when he gets to Jerusalem, when Paul does, He's on trial before Festus. He's on trial before King Agrippa. He gets bounced around and held around. And all of that is meant to be an echo of the way that Jesus' trial goes. It's showing us that what Jesus did, Paul does as well. And to your point, Becky, David had done earlier. Right? So there's some of the pictures. Okay, here's where we're going to stop because we've got to let you go to church. Um, final thing, the big, language, the, the big point here in verse 22. Or, I'm sorry, verse 20, what is it, 21? Where Saul says, you shall surely be king. Wait, where is it? I've lost it already. 21, I just can't find my text here, my notes. Verse 20, I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom will be established in your hands. Whatever Saul meant and why ever he said it, he's exactly right, right? David is innocent, he is loyal, and he will be made king, okay? So watch, as, you continue, as we continue to watch through Samuel, just look for, how, what does this tell me? What am I learning about the character of the man that God chooses to place on the throne? It's gonna be instructive to us as we understand what it is that is so exalted and beautiful about Jesus and that he is all that he is on your behalf. Jesus will not spend his power and his might. He will not cash 